0: You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Today, our guest is adjunct William & Mary professor Kelly Earhart, who's here to talk with us about the business of death and burial. And death and mourning are such personal um, experiences to go through. So it's interesting sometimes to think about the business side of that and how some of these processes and practices get streamlined and are um, the outcome of practicality and also concerns about faith and religion and and remembrance. So Kelly, thank you for being here today and talking to us about this really fascinating topic.
1: Thank you for having me, I really appreciate
0: it. So we wanna start our story in the 18th century in Williamsburg because that's where everything starts for us on this show. So. It, in the very beginning, uh, you know, I'm saying with quotation marks, in the beginning uh, of the revolutionary period, um, death practices, funeral practices, I should say, are not really standardized. What are we seeing um, in the early colonial period?
1: When we're seeing through the through, through part of the colonial period, especially when we're getting into the revolutionary period, um, there is some elements that are somewhat standardized in the sense when the sort of first groups of British settlers come, they're bringing with them the things that they know, and they're bringing with them deaf practices that are familiar to them. So when we get into the revolutionary period here in the city of Williamsburg, uh, there are a number of things about the, what they're doing and the objects they're using that are going to be very familiar to people living in England, um, and even living in periods slightly before this, this one.
0: Um, And so, burials or um, some of the things we think of the standard trappings of a funeral today, an undertaker, a mortician, uh, a service at the graveside, those things are not standard practice then. When do we see those things begin to evolve and sort of in, in what order?
1: One of the things that you begin to see fairly early is, of course, the fact that in the 18th century, for many, many people, especially if they're living in the city of Williamsburg, that they are purchasing a basically a custom-built coffin from a cabinet maker. And we look to the examples here in the city of Williamsburg of Anthony Hay uh, and Benjamin Bucktrout, both of whom at various points actually had uh, contracts with both James and York County, to bury the poor who can't afford to do it themselves. So that you're beginning to see people who do a lot of this work. So move into the 19th century, you're beginning to see more specialization, that cabinet makers and undertakers begin to sort of separate. And that's not to say, especially in rural areas, that you don't have people who are cabinet makers that are also undertakers, uh, but the idea of these two jobs being separate uh, begins to come into, into, into play. The other thing that's very important to point out is the word undertaker in the 18th century is a very different meaning than it does in the 19th century. An 18th century undertaker is someone who sort of undertakes a job. We might think of them as a contractor today. An example from the city of Williamsburg would be Benjamin Powell, for example. And it isn't, it isn't until you get into the 19th century that you begin to see undertaker being used to describe those who sort of... who provide funerary objects and even prepare uh, bodies at the after the time of death and initially during that transition they use specific words to additional words to justify the change so they go from undertakers being contractors and they start dealing with the dead they call themselves uh, furnishing undertakers and then funeral undertakers and over time by the, certainly by the middle of the 19th century, it's understood that an undertaker is someone who deals with death as opposed to a contractor who, who constructs things.:
0: The other term you've used is cabinet maker. That's another phrase people might not be familiar with. When we're talking about a cabinet maker in the 18th century, what job is that? Uh, they may, they, uh, it's
1: woodworking. They produce a tremendous number of various objects, a furniture. Um, of other wooden things that would be used for the home, so it makes sense that their job fits—that making a making a coffin would be part of this. There's a really great sign in the Colonial Williamsburg collection, um, the Van Horn shop sign, and uh, and he was a he was a cabinet maker, and very clearly there is a cradle, there is a clothes chest, and there is a coffin. All three are on the sign. So it's a clear demonstration in the c- collections here at Colonial Williamsburg that it, it immediately makes it clear what it is that this man does.
0: It's all three stages of life, too, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yeah, which is sort of amazing.
0: It's, re- it's, it's a nice, nice summation. So let's go back to what you said about cabinet makers taking on the business of burying the poor. Tell me wh- what's behind this story. What, is this a problem for the city? Wh- what kind of burials do the poor get?
1: Um, unfortunately the poor don't get much of anything. They're provided with the simplest and sort of lowest quality um, burial receptacles, coffins. Uh, there is there is whatever sort of the family itself can afford in addition. They of course, if there is family at all, uh, will attend such a burial. Um, but the biggest thing sort of from the undertaker's perspective is providing these coffins, and it's not a, it's not a necessarily wildly lucrative contract for um, a cabinet maker and an undertaker, but a number of them, particularly in small rural areas, take this on as part of their um, their almost like as their duties
0: So when the tide turns towards more standardization, more professionalization um, and more commercialization of burial. What are some of the first signs we see of the, that business of death, that death industry yeah. <laughs> um, sort of uh, rising here in Virginia? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, one of the things that you begin to see as sort of they're making that transition from sort of cabinet makers into undertakers, and a good example of this is, I mentioned Benjamin Bucktrout earlier, Richard Bucktrout, his son. Uh, one of the things that you begin to see that they start charging for is, quote unquote, attendance at funeral. So the idea that they are there to assist if there's a problem, that they are there to oversee certain elements. Um, They also begin to talk about how they charge for conveyance of the body. I don't believe in the area that they at this point, when we talk about mm, second quarter of the 19th century, that they're that in the city of Williamsburg they're talking hearses, but the idea that slowly but surely, and this is true everywhere, they're providing more and more services and more and more objects for the funeral itself. Such as? Um, one of the things is, is going to be uh, actually the introduction, and it shouldn't say introduction of hearses because in New England they have hearses towards the late 18th century, and they were actually um, subscription they, the city would purchase them, and people would subscribe to the purchase of the of it, um, which you don 't see in other regions and you begin to see these sort of at the turn of the nineteenth century um, uh, in Philadelphia they developed very fine hearses fairly early by the 1830s they talk about their good hearse they talk about um, their other hearses Some of these guys own a fleet of of these vehicles and this is a major inter- introduction um, they'd existed they existed in, in they had existed in England prior to that. Uh, Hearses have a background going back to antiquity, but you begin to see them in America um, around that turn of the century, in that first quarter of the 19th century, and to a certain extent even a little before that in New England.
0: And you mentioned objects. What are some of the objects we might think about? Um,
1: One of them is actually the burial receptacle. The coffin begins to slowly change. The shape begins to change. So when we think of a coffin, a six-sided coffin, is usually what we think of sort of very severe. It's the one that we put up at Halloween, sure. that shape. Uh, it begins to soften as we uh, get into like sort of the late 18th, early 19th century. The top becomes more rounded um, and it begins to sort of obscure the, the, the shape of the body. So it's not sort of head, shoulders, down to the feet. It's sort of this rounded element sort of from the shoulders up around the head. Um, Which becomes popular starting in sort of the 1790s-ish, and sort of through the 19th century, that the the shape is going to change in terms of those objects. There are more and more objects as you get through the 19th century. The idea that there's going to be candelabras, and you're going to have um, special carpets that you're going to put out, and uh, you're going to have for the Catholics there's going to be a kneeling bar, and all of these specific objects, which really begin to sort of pop up in greater. Um, numbers as you move through that night through the nineteenth century. So
0: this is a t- this is telling us a story about the economy as well because mm-hmm. these are niceties that people have the money to spend on. Yes. So what are we seeing happening with the economy? I- I'm assuming this means we're becoming more prosperous. We have more pocket money.
1: Yes, and that is part of it. As you begin to see the sort of the American middle class grow in the nineteenth century, they have sort of, they begin to introduce sort of ideas and morals and expectations um, of the the world in which they live and they kind of want to make everything in their own image. And they begin to develop very elaborate rituals in terms of uh, social calls and behavior and expectations of how people act and interact with each other. And one of those sort of expectations that begins to develop is around the funeral, um, just like around the wedding. And these changes are, as you said, in part because they have the money. And the interesting thing is there's a number of panics throughout the 19th century. And one of the things in my own research, what I looked at was, was there a major change in how much people were spending looking at undertaker um, Mm -hmm. ledgers? And the answer was, they're spending less, but they're still spending. They're still spending the money on the they're not getting the top of the line burial receptacle maybe it's not lined in satin it's lined in flannel instead and the headstone they order is not quite as fancy but they're still making these purchases because i think as you move through the 19th century there's an expectation that there that the rules of a quote unquote decent burial change and part of that change is tied to is actually very much tied to the idea of the business growing
0: one of the most interesting areas of your expertise is the beginning of embalming. So we are firmly uh, progressed up into the nineteenth century now. Um, where do we get this idea? What prompts the necessity for this sort of preservation?
1: It doesn't. There are actually fits and starts of it before sort of before the Civil War, because everyone associates embalming with the Civil War, and I'll get back to that in a minute. There are fits and starts with it prior to that point. A big example of this introduction. I'm embalming, but it's, not, it's to a medical community, not to a national com- community, is um, a book that was written in the 1840s. There is a French doctor by the name of Ganal who says he's come up with this brilliant way to preserve bodies, which isn't as great as he thought it was because an American doctor goes over and observes and he comes back and says, this doesn't really work. So there is an effort prior to the Civil War to do these things. When we get into the American Civil War, um, there are these uh, efforts to preserve bodies, mostly for the purpose of shipping a body back, um, back, you know, back home. And there are a whole bunch of men who set up these tents sort of at the edge of the battlefield, these tents at the edge of the battlefield, and bodies are brought to them and embalm. There's a really famous picture from the Library of Congress of this being done. And this becomes the first introduction to the American public that embalming exists and that can be effective. Now not everybody who's shipping bodies back is using arterial embalming, the idea of going into the the system, uh, into the circulatory system, and pumping a uh, fluid through it. Um, For example, here in the city of Williamsburg, Richard Bucktrout, who I mentioned earlier, after the Battle of Williamsburg, is preparing bodies to be shipped. Actually, they're union bodies that he ships. It's from a regiment in New Jersey. And he prepares them for shipment. And he uses a very unsophisticated method known as cracking and packing, which uh, is the idea of opening both the chest and the abdominal cavity and putting um, absorbent, uh, usually charcoal, inside just enough to get the body onto a train from here in Williamsburg back to New Jersey.
0: I had no idea. Yeah, it's kind of... And when we talk about arterial embalming, without getting too graphic, yeah. the body is exsanguinated and then yes. the the uh, circulatory system the fluids are replaced with what? Um, it
1: depends on the time period you're talking about. Um, at the time of... The, uh, at the time of the American Civil War, they're using uh, zinc chloride on occasion, they're using carbolic acid, they, and they are using arsenic.
0: One of the most famous examples of embalming is Abraham Lincoln.
1: Yes. Um, Lincoln, of course, is embalmed shortly after death. And initially, people describe the body as looking very lifelike. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln makes a comment about how lifelike he looks, uh, how sort of how sweet the body looks, and they go through this whole thing about how how good he looks initially. Many people know that he was put on a train, and of course, was um, that train went all over the place, and then eventually ends up in Springfield, where he ultimately is buried. By the time he gets to Springfield, he doesn't look so good anymore. Uh, and they, do a lot, they have to do a lot of work on him because his face is described as quote-unquote leaden and almost brown, and his eyes are, are, uh, and cheeks are sunken. So this is sort of at the very beginning of the modern technology of arterial embalming, and it isn't until sort of the generation after the Civil War that we begin to see some real major changes. And the interesting thing is that the real pioneers in the arterial embalming, with which we're more familiar, uh, were not embalmers during the Civil War. Many of them served in the war, and some of them served in medical corps, and they served both North and South. uh, But they were not embalmers um, during the war itself.
0: So you've spent your scholarship looking at the history of American burial practices from the colonial um, to the Civil War, up to the present. When you look at burials today, or maybe when you have the occasion to attend a funeral, uh, what do you see, what's your perspective on Today is what we think of as modern practices and, and the, um, the legacy that they follow back to the beginning.
1: Um, there's a lot of things that stay with us, especially things that are coming out of the mid to late 19th century in terms of our expectations. One of the things that develops in the early 20th century is the idea that uh, funeral homes should be in homes. Um, as funeral homes become more and more common, we get to the 1920s or so, the idea is that they should be in a house so i'm sure everyone has if you've been to a funeral it's not uncommon to be in ones that in buildings that look like houses and that's something that's that is sort of a tradition that comes out for, of, a, of an earlier period um the behavior of the mortician sort of the expectation that they are kind and they are helpful but they're not intrusive uh comes out of sort of the comes out of the 19th century uh the hearse of course is a continuation. uh, One of the little things, if you see the little S's on the side in the back, that actually comes out of carriages, um, which was a popular look on carriages. And when they make the transition from horse-drawn hearses to what they call motor coach hearses, they maintain many, and especially initially, they maintain a lot of the elements of what a horse-drawn one looks like. And actually, initially, they take them and they put them on chassis Then <laughs> some of them do it themselves which is, and those pictures are really wild. Um, but the idea that you have this hearse and that they have that S still is a, is a throwback to these earlier. So there's little tiny things that you'll see that you wouldn't even think of because we associate, well yeah, that's what, that's what hearse's look like. But it comes from, little pieces come from sort of these earlier periods.
0: Well, Kelly, I've just been hanging off of every word that you've shared with us today. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this fascinating topic. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you and so glad that you could be our guest today.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. We're always glad to hear your feedback. Send us an email at podcast.history.org.